0: The text this morning that will serve as the foundation for my message to you is taken from Paul's letter to Philemon. Blessed is the man who's sitting next to someone who knows where Philemon is. Philemon. I'm going to read the entire letter. It's on the PowerPoint. If you have a a pew Bible, it's on page 1101. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus far the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to open the book, to read the very word of God, delivered through your prophets and your apostles. The scriptures are wholly sufficient, inerrant, infallible, inspired, They give us everything that is needful for our faith and its practice. And so this morning, as we look into it, we ask, Father, that you would open the ears of all here this morning. That you would open the hearts of everyone. That they might hear what the Spirit is saying to this church this day. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the outset, let me just put the question before you that's on everybody's mind. Why is this in the Bible? Why is this here? You know, when you when you look at the, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they speak about Jesus. Pretty easy to understand why they're there. You look at some of Paul's other letters, and they talk about theology and explain our faith. It's easy to see why they're there, but bef- but before us this morning, we have this personal letter that the apostle wrote to a fellow believer. Why is this here? Well, let's begin by just establishing a truth at the outset. Uh, Paul wrote another letter to Timothy, who's named as a with, being with Paul as he wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to Timothy, It's 2 Timothy, it's the second of two letters, and in that letter he says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this is something we hold fast to. That all that is contained within the book is scripture. It's God's word. The holy writings, as Paul says, are God-breathed. Now... Did the Apostle Paul know that 2,000 years later we'd be reading his personal mail? I doubt it. But God knew. There's something in this letter that God wanted all of his people to see. And I think it's this. It's the gospel applied to life. The message of the gospel applied to life. Now in order for me to to speak to the letter and its contents and what I think it's saying this morning, I have to establish some other truths for you. I need you to be clear about certain things, certain foundational doctrine. Don't be afraid of theological words. Doctrine just means teaching. Certain things that the faith teaches that you must be aware of. Foundational, ground floor things. I need to make sure you, you know these before I can get into the letter. If someone claims to know Christ, if they call themselves a Christian, it means that they've heard the gospel. They've heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And they've believed it. They've believed that Jesus died for their sins. They believe that he was buried. He actually died, physically died. And he rose on the third day, physically, rose From the dead. As their substitute. He went to the cross as their substitute. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus for your sins, for my sins. So if you believe that, then you possess faith in him. It needs to be a faith that is vibrant and true. That means that something miraculous has happened to you. Biblical Christianity, so defined, is a supernatural thing. A supernatural thing. A true Christian is a Christian because God has awakened you to faith. It is not of works, it is not of your own doing. You're not that special. How can I say that? You're all wonderful people, aren't you? Well, using a human standard, you're wonderful. But we're going to use God's standard. And we're not very wonderful in his sight, in and of ourselves. We are sinners. We are unclean. We are rebellious. We are unrighteous. We have, not fa- we have failed, rather, to love our neighbor as we ought. We have failed to love God as we ought, and therefore we stand condemned before this holy God but in the hearing of the gospel you've heard the gospel and you recognize God awakening to you to the fact that you were condemned and unclean and you need to be saved and, and you hear that this one came forth God's own son who took on flesh who took on our likeness who lived a life of perfect obedience in every aspect and then at the time appointed took to the cross what took place on the cross That was a cosmic day of atonement where the Savior, the Son of God was suspended between heaven and earth. Why? So that the wrath of God could be poured out on him. He willingly did that. The Father sent the Son. The Son willingly came. And the Father says, I will accept no other means of salvation except him. Look to Him. Trust Him. Believe in Him. So you say you believe. Well, that's the beginning of your faith. It starts with that. Believing. Trusting. But once you have trusted and continue to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, know this, it's supernatural what's happened to you. You've been awakened to that truth, but God does not stop there. He actually goes about making you righteous. He begins, as Paul says, to conform you to the image of his son. You know who that excites? True believers. Oh, I want to be just like him. God did not save you to continue on in the manner which drove you to the cross to begin with. It's not a simple message. What do I mean? It's simple to understand, but it's not a simple message. We make it too simple. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, and turn to Christ and believe. And if you believe, God is conforming you to the image of his son. The bottom line is this. A person who was born again, a true believer, will be a different person. A true believer will be a different person. I no longer have a stomach for nominal Christianity. If you're here playing a part like this is something to do on a Sunday morning, then get out now because all you're doing by hearing the word of God week by week and not entering into faith, into Jesus Christ, true saving faith, you're heaping up judgment for yourself on the day of judgment. The world has had enough of play acting. The world, look around at your country. Look at the things they believe. Millions of babies slaughtered day by day. Year by year. And we just stand and stay. Nothing. Where is the church? Where are God's people? Do you think Jesus would have stood for that? No. And that's just one example. A person who is born again will be a true believer. They'll be a different person. They'll have a new heart, a new mind, a new will, new desires, new affections. And their whole world and life view will be different than that of the world. As Jesus taught us, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Now Jesus wasn't interested in agriculture. He was talking about people. People. Christian tree, Christian fruit. If you say you are a Christian, you will bear Christian fruit. You will look like Jesus. You will. You know a tree by the fruit it bears. So to possess saving faith means you've heard the gospel, you've understood the gospel, but it means God has done a work in you in order for you to receive this truth. See Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The gospel isn't something that you merely just agree to with your mind. It isn't some agreement between you and God, like getting out of hell. Whoa, thanks. It's more than these things. It's more than these things. The gospel should inform everything in your life. You see, God is interested in a whole life overhaul. Whole life. Every aspect of your life comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your home life, your work life, your recreational life, your church life. God is interested in all of it. And so the gospel, the good news about Jesus, should so permeate our mind and our heart that that it informs everything about our lives. And we see this in Paul's letter. Okay, digress just a little further before I get into the letter. Notice I said something that the Apostle Paul, a truth he gave us elsewhere. He said he's conforming us to the image of his son. Well, we tend to run to extremes as people. You ever notice that? If a correction is needed, we tend to way overcorrect. And when I lay lay down these truths about Christianity, like I've laid them down, then, then, the, then certain people with certain temperaments think I need to be perfect. I need to be perfect. We're not talking about being perfect in this life. We're not talking about that. You will not be perfect in this life. You are in process. You're being conformed. It's a process. So cut yourself a break. Those of you that are so hard on yourselves. And some of you need to be harder on yourselves than you have been. The minute that a sinner comes to faith in Christ, the work is begun. God is transforming people from the inside out. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Our sin, our sin. We use these words sometimes and we just assume that you know what they mean. Our sin. All those things that we have thought and said, and imagined, and done, which are displeasing to God, which condemn us before a holy God, all those things, for the Christian, who has faith in Christ, have been forgiven. Past sin, hallelujah. Present sin, the sins you committed this morning before coming to church. Any future sins that you may commit, and I'm using that word, may. Because now, as a Christian, you have the power to Resist temptation and not to sin. All of it's been forgiven. All of it, and those of you that have had classes with me know I like the big words. All of our sin for the believer has been imputed, imputed to Christ. What does that mean? Reckoned. Counted as his. When? On the cross. You mean I wasn't born yet? Yep. He's God. He knew you before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? You and you and you and you. And he knew you'd be here today. listening to me. Your sin has been imputed, counted, reckoned. And think about the one that took that upon his own being. God the Son. Is there any sin that you could commit that can't be forgiven if God paid for it? No. There's only one sin that can't be atoned for. Do you know what that is? Unbelief. Trust. You have to trust him. Put your faith in him. Trust him. Every sin can be forgiven. Including unbelief. But for those who die without faith in Christ. They will have to answer for their sins themselves. Either judgment day has already happened for you. When Christ took to the cross. Or judgment day will happen to you. On the last day, this is what the word of God declares. So, for us, our sins have been imputed to Christ, and it it gets better. God then looks at us and says, He imputes Christ's righteousness as if it's our own. So, when God looks at you, He sees one that is righteous. Why? How is that possible? Because you're in Christ, you're covered. When he looks at you, when he looks at you, and you, and you, and you, plural, you know what he says? That one belongs to me. That one belongs to me. No one can lay a charge against you. Do you know even Satan himself can no longer accuse the brethren? So stop giving Satan glory. You have the power over him now. Greater is he that is in you, that is God, the spirit, than he that is in the world which is Satan. So stop blaming Satan for all your troubles. Troubles will come in this life. But take heart, Christ is overcome. So not only has all of your sin been forgiven because of Jesus, now you even are righteous in the sight of God. And go one further, God is actually making you righteous. How about that? Those of you who bear the name Christian, it means one thing. And let me just bottom line all of this. That you, like every other human being, born of the union of a man and a woman, were born inheriting the corruption of our father, Adam, the first man, and Eve, the first woman. When they disobeyed God, it created chaos in the world Corrupted all of us, corrupted creation. But take heart, as I said, the second Adam, the last Adam, has entered in Jesus Christ to begin the new creation. And you are part of that. It's already begun. It has not yet been consummated. We long for the day. So, that was my warm-up. Those are foundational truths. You have to believe those things. That is what makes biblical Christianity biblical. Those are from the Bible. We have no other authority. Pastor Bruce would never call himself an authority over Scripture. He is its mouthpiece. He's been appointed. I've been appointed. Others have been appointed. But we all appeal, you and me and everyone, appeal to the same thing, the book. The book. It's God's word. So, if you're a Christian, the question that needs to be asked every day, how does my Lord then want me to live? How does he want me to live? How does he want me to witness to this transformation that he's, he's wrought about in me? How, how does he, and the answer is, in the scriptures... But an equally important question that you should be asking is Do I see evidence of his transforming work in my life? Do I? Am I trusting Christ? Do I see evidence of his work in my life? Do I hate sin? Do I love righteousness? Do I hate evil? Do I love Jesus? By these, these things, we have assurance that our faith is true. And know this. God wants his people to live in response to the gospel of Jesus. Let me say it again. God wants his people to live in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why do I say in response to? Because your salvation has already been hard fought and won by Christ. We are living in response to the work of Jesus. And if you understand God's grace, it will inform everything that you do. It informed everything in the Apostle Paul's life. Everything. 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 This letter to Philemon will demonstrate what I mean. If you have the book before you, open it up to Philemon. Don't worry, I promise to have you out by lunchtime. I only get a couple opportunities to preach a year, so... On Sundays, anyway. So Paul has this letter he writes to this man named Philemon, it starts this way. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and our Archippus, rather, our fellow soldier, in the church in your house. So, the letter is written by none other than, than the one and only Apostle Paul. He's accompanied at the time of the writing by his protege, Timothy. He's writing to this man named Philemon. And he's writing to several others who are most likely family members, like his wife and his son. And he also includes the church that meets in their house. Now, early in the church's history, we didn't have beautiful big buildings on finely manicured lawns like we now have. We met in homes. okay? And Philemon had a home which could accommodate the church. So there they are. And Paul is writing to Philemon. But he's writing basically to all the believers that meet with him. The letter, as you read through it, clues us into the nature of Paul's relationship to Philemon. Apparently, Philemon became a believer under Paul's preaching, under his ministry. In verse 19, Paul states this. He says, you owe me your own self. Okay, you owe me your own self. In other words, the only thing that could could elicit a statement like that is, hey, I saved you from hell, bro. That's what he's saying. That's my translation. You can use that if you'd like. You owe me your own self. Paul refers to him in verse 2 as a fellow worker. And in verse 17, as a partner in the ministry. So we're learning some things about the nature of of their relationship and who Philemon is. Not only did Philemon open his home to host the church, but he was active in its ministry. And based upon what I said a moment ago, we can clearly see that Philemon's life bore the fruit of genuine faith, can't we? Based upon what Paul says about him. Did you see verses 4 through 7? Did you see it there? What did did Paul say to Philemon? He says, I thank God. Why? When I remember you in my prayers. Why? Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So people noted Philemon's faith. They could see that his works were, were... were genuine were true they they proceeded from his faith and and paul had heard about these things he says i i I pray he says that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of christ so as we're doing what christ commands us as you're acting upon what you have learned as a christian what to do what not to do right as you act on that and, and act out in faith doing good things, good works that Christ prepared beforehand for us to do, guess what happens? You grow in your understanding. See, we think this is all head knowledge. Mm-mm. As far as God is concerned, when you act upon the faith that you know and what you know to be true, there is an understanding, a deeper understanding that takes place when you act in faith. Don't miss that. In this church, there are a lot of people who love the scriptures and theology and they're digging down deep in the word of God and that's all well and good. But it needs to go from here to here to these. Here. And Paul says, I pray that you continue. Why? Because you'll come to deeper levels of understanding. You'll know the love of the Savior even more deeply. And look at what he closes uh, with around verse 7. He says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So, Now, that's the introduction. Let's get into the meat of the letter. Why is Paul writing to Philemon? What's the purpose? When you're reading these documents, you need to know what the original author meant when he wrote them because that's what it means to you. You can't make up the meaning. Paul's not writing to Dan. Paul's writing to Philemon. And we want to know what the truths are. So the truths have to be the same to Philemon and to us. This is God's word. Right? In verses 8 through 22, we get the, the purpose for which Paul is writing. Philemon had a servant. The word can be translated slave. Ooh. Don't, don't stumble on that. This was a reality in the Roman world. He had a servant, household servant, Dulos, slave, named Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away. And not only did he flee, but apparently he did something bad. Like he must have stolen, that's what scholars say, from Philemon to fund his getaway. Paul seems to indicate this in verse 18, that Onesimus had wronged Philemon. Even above and beyond running away. Now, while Onesimus is on the run, he searches out the apostle Paul. And finds him in prison. The apostle's in prison for his Christian witness. And while he's in prison, Onesimus coming to him, Paul converts him to faith. Paul now feels compelled to send Onesimus back to his master Philemon. And you say, why? Well, this is proper. He's got to go answer for what he's done but the problem arises in the fact that as scholars will tell you the penalty for a runa- runaway slave under Roman law was brutal even capital and the fact that he stole probably made everything that much worse so Paul knowing this okay, sends Onesimus back with this letter where he takes up for him and Let's look at what he says beginning in verse 8 again. He says, accordingly, this is the Apostle Paul to Philemon, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful to you and me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. (laughs) I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a servant, but more than a servant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, hey, perhaps this was why he was parted from you, that he would become a believer. Out of all the evil, God brought forth good. It's interesting to note, too, that when you read through that passage, that the Apostle Paul, he's not above a little arm-twisting, right? Did you pick up on that? A little arm-twisting in there. He's like, I could command you, but I've heard of healing and love, but oh, my child Onesimus, my very heart, I could command you. Paul doesn't want to exert external pressure to make Philemon do what is the right thing. He wants to appeal to what he knows of Philemon. He wants to appeal to the heart and to love. Verse 17, if you consider me your partner, Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is making his appeal from the most powerful motivator there is. Love. Love. Love, not law. Love. He wants him to be merciful and forgiving. He wants Philemon to exercise what he is toward Onesimus. And notice upon what grounds Paul makes the appeal. He says, Onesimus, think of him no longer as a servant, he's now a brother. He's got a new identity. He's changed. You can no longer think of him in the former manner you thought of him. He is now part of the family. He's a new creation, a new creature. The old Onesimus is dead. The new Onesimus has arrived, born again by the grace of God. He's not a Christian in name only, he's the genuine article. Look at what Paul says of Onesimus in verse 11. He says, formerly he was useless to you. He's talking to Philemon. He says, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, Philemon, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. He's the real deal. Now, there's a play on words here that's not obvious. You need to know what Onesimus' name literally means. You know what his name literally means? Affectionate. Affectionate. That's what Onesimus means. And Philemon, his name liter- uh, I'm sorry, useful. I'm sorry, I, I made a mistake. Onesimus' name means useful. Philemon's name means affectionate. Okay, let's get that straight. And Paul's name literally means little. So now look at verse 11 again, armed with this knowledge. So we have Philemon, who's affectionate. Onesimus, who's useful. And Paul, who's little. And I'm going to offer you my paraphrase of verse 11 formerly brother affectionate servant useful was useless to you brother affectionate but now servant useful has become brother useful and brother useful is indeed useful because he's family and he loves jesus remember jesus the one who saved us from utter eternal torment by the way remember how you heard through me the little apostle brother affectionate you heard through me and you believed Brother useful is now useful to you, brother affectionate, and me, the little old apostle who's in prison for preaching Jesus. Remember Jesus? Who bore the wrath of God on your behalf. You, the affectionate one, me, the little old apostle, and now brother useful. We are all his servants. That's my paraphrase of verse 11. Do you get what's going on here? Paul wants Onesimus to realize he's family. Verse 16, no longer think of him as a bondservant. But he's more than that, he's a beloved brother, especially to you, but now much more to to me. He's useful. Paul is saying he's been born again. He's repentant, he's forgiven, he's a loving new creation. Paul closes the letter with a little more arm-twisting. Look at verses 21 through 25. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, I prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I'll be graciously given to you. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? He's saying, I could show up at any time. I could show up at any time. to Make sure you're doing what I've asked. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, by the way, part of Colossians Church. He's now a prisoner. If you guys have my Colossians study? This is Epaphras, same guy. He's in prison. Sends greetings to you in Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why would he invoke all those names? Hey, they're watching too. They're watching too to make sure you're going to do the right thing. I used to have a—he uh, well, we, I still do have a brother in the Lord. Some of you know Aaron Andrade. He just moved down south, but he used to always say, "Do the right thing, do the right thing," and that's what Paul's saying: "Do the right thing, do the right thing, man. Okay, so there's the explanation of the letter, but we still haven't answered the original question: Why is this in the Bible? Why is it here? So what? It's a nice story, has a happy ending, I believe. Philemon did what Paul asked. Onesimus received back. Everyone lived happily ever after, except for Paul, who shortly thereafter didn't have a happy ending, except on the other side of that ordeal he went through. But so what? Some, some of you guys get a little uneasy. You should always ask the preacher, after the end of his fantastic exposition, so What? You should, you should walk away... So that's wonderful, great Bible trivia, but so what? What does it mean? What, how do we live it? How do we, what are we supposed to think now? How are we supposed to live? That's what you want to know. It's important. That's the obligation of the preacher. You should have that. Uh, you, we sh- you should hold us to that. But before I answer why it's in the Bible, I have to ask a second question. We need to really drill down on coming up with a solution... Uh, coming up with Paul's framework for uh, coming up with a solution to this problem. And by now, it's apparent to all of you, I hope, that what Paul is doing in order to resolve this problem that he has is he's merely taking the gospel and he's applying it to this problem. Right? Let me show you what I mean. Let me draw out the contrast for you. So Philemon, as Onesimus' master, had every right to punish Onesimus according to law. Okay? Keep that on one hand. God Almighty, as Lord over all creation, has every right to punish us, his rebellious image bearers, right? Paul appeals to Philemon, whom Paul testifies is loving and merciful and gracious to be merciful to Onesimus on the grounds that he is penitent. He's a Christian. Any restitution that must be paid will be paid by Paul. That's a Christ-like act, by the way. And Philemon and Paul will then disadvantage themselves in order to advantage Onesimus. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace, okay? God, who is loving and merciful and gracious, sent forth his Son, who bore the wrath that our sin debt accrued. He did this on the cross when he died in judgment in our place. God disadvantaged himself to advantage us. God's justice, though, was satisfied in the death of Jesus. Onesimus is a Christian now. He's a member of God's family through faith in Christ. He's now a brother in the Lord. He has a new identity and Philemon must think of him this way. In like manner, God now views all of us as part of his family. We are no longer objects of wrath, but his dearly loved children brought in through faith in Christ. As Martin Luther said, we are the Lord's Onesimai. Do you see what Paul did? Philemon was in the position of God in a manner of speaking who could have punished Onesimus we are the Onesimus Paul is acting as Christ in this situation in appealing in God the Father and Paul Paul says finally then we both want the same thing reconciliation here don't we so we have to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage Onesimus forgive, forgive, forgive and I will pay says Paul You see that? It's brilliant. The gospel was so, Paul was so saturated in God's grace that he didn't have to have rules and regulations. It was love. It was mercy. It was grace. It's simple. Now go and do it. Go be Jesus to people. Not so simple then. But those that truly know God, those that truly know the grace of God can cultivate this type of mercy to those who are penitent. Okay. So now, the so what? Let's drill down. Have you ever taken the time to think about our gatherings. Sometimes you do this like a routine, and you just kind of just... It's just something you do. You never really think about, why do we do this? Like, what? What? Why? It's an odd thing, isn't it, to gather here Sunday by Sunday, especially if, if you're part of the world and not part of the church, and you're looking in and you're going, what are these people on about Sunday by Sunday? What's so... What's so important... That's in that place that during the summer they go. And in the snow they go. And when the patriots are on, they go. We're we're an odd lot. We're peculiar. What's holding us all together? What's Christ? I, I dare say that most of you could find something better to do on your Sundays than hang out with me, if we didn't have Christ in common, right? I don't feel that way about you, but if you felt that way about me, that's okay. But what is binding us together is the love of God the Father, expressed through Christ the Son. Applied to our hearts, each and every one of us, the Spirit of God binding us all together. I, I, I years ago, I went to a, a Bible conference down in Rhode Island. I got to see one of my favorite preachers, Paul Washer. I got to see him preach. You think I preached long? He preached for two hours at a whack three times, and I stayed for every bit of it. I even hung around in between the services in the parking lot. Right. I met a fellow there named Vinny, and I'll never forget him. He was from Long Island. Vinny and I had this, our testimonies could have been, you you could have just interchanged our names. And I was hanging out there with another brother, Mike Warren, and we talked for what seemed about five minutes. We were there for two hours talking with one another. And it went by like that. And I felt like I had known Vinny my whole life. What is that? That's supernatural. That's God binding together two believers, bound together in faith, in love. That's what we're trying to cultivate here. God has gathered us together in these local communities for discipleship. That's instruction, for encouragement, for help, for worship and witness, for the practices of the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And also, don't discount this our gatherings are indeed a witness to the world outside. There is a living God. Get right with them. That's why we gather. How else could these communities survive with such a a diverse group of people? Because God binds us together. With purpose. With what I said, I would like to apply what Paul said to Philemon, to help us in our gatherings together, okay? I want to do this in two two ways. First, what should our attitudes be toward one another? As we look at Philemon's letter, we draw out some, uh, some helpful encouragement about what our attitudes should be one to another. If these communities are to survive and thrive, we must have a proper attitude, and we see it in the letter. First of all, we all have to recognize that we are this, that we are condemned sinners... We are condemned sinners who have been redeemed by Christ's death. I don't care what you were before you came to Christ. I don't care. I don't care how bad you are or were. I don't care or how good you thought you were. Doesn't... I don't care. What I care about now is this. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you know him? If so, welcome the slate has been wiped clean for you. And for me, I am not your judge. What binds us together is Christ. We were all sinners. That's what brought us here to this place where we believe we have all failed to love God as we ought. We have all failed to love our neighbor as we ought. And again, you may, felt, you may feel this morning that you're a decent person. Well, according to a human standard, maybe so, okay? Maybe so. I won't take that from you. But God's bar, as I mentioned earlier, is far higher. And this is what everybody needs to understand that, the, as the Apostle Paul said in the letter to the Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. You cannot in no wise be saved if you don't recognize this. You are condemned. At some point, we got to no longer worry about hurting people's feelings. Why? Why do I say that? Because think about the message. We're talking about eternity and where you're going to spend it. If a building was on fire and you were inside, asleep, as we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and I stand outside the burning building and I go, Hey... You might want to leave the building. Would I not be culpable of your death if you did not wake up because I did not do everything in my power to bang on that door, screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs? If you believe that what you believe is really real, then how are we not making more noise? What is wrong with us? I, you know, I talk to a lot of Christians, a lot of believers over the course of the weeks and months as the years go on and on and on, and they all lament about the world around them. Oh, it's so horrible. Oh, it's so horrible. Well, we have the, the means whereby to turn back the tide, and what do we do? Lord, take me away from this. Lord, t- stop that. Stop that. You, somebody, many of you people came up with a dispensational eschatology. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. You know what it is? You're waiting for the rapture. Get me out of here. I'm not going to disabuse you of that notion, but you're here now. What are you doing? Stop living for you. Christ left you in the world. Why? To witness. And when someone brings something to you which you know runs against the biblical worldview, don't let people get away with that. What if it cost me my job? So what? You don't think God can get you another job? And you do it with gentleness and respect, not like me. (laughs) Listen to me. Listen to us. Look at what are we doing. In the book of Acts, you ever read the book of Acts? Wow. And we all go, well, that was just for them. Why? Isn't the spirit of God residing in us like them? Something else must, must be missing. I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you where the problem lies. With us. Do you pray every day? How much? Do you fast when you pray? Because you're so sick to your stomach about the conditions around you, your lost friends, your lost loved ones, you couldn't even think about eating a meal. You got to get on your knees and pray. Do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray for the deacons? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in the Lord? As the apostle Paul prayed for fellow believers that they might grow up in the knowledge. You see, brothers and sisters, it's like this. You want to know what the problem is? I'll tell you what it is. We are all infants. We're all infants, spiritually speaking. By now we should be unto the meat of the word and we're drinking the milk still. And God has to grow us up before he can do bigger and better things through us. This church is lovely. It's, it reminds me of the church that's gifted, right? We got all the gifts. We got musicians. We got teachers. We got children's ministry. We got beautiful people. So what? You can always dig deeper. Reach further. Make more noise. If you believe that what you believe is really real, then it should manifest itself in your life. And we stand on this message. We are all redeemed sinners. All of us, all of us are servants of one another who stand on the truth. The church does not exist for your good pleasure or for mine. It exists for the glory of God. And it's, it's not about what the church can do for you. It's about what you can do through the church and for the church. And it's this common ground, right? So what should our attitudes be? towards one another. Well, we need to remember that we are all part of this family of faith. We have a common identity. Like Philemon had to learn about Onesimus. He's now a brother. So must we keep in mind, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. This is a family. We all came in the same way through that same narrow gate, and we're all walking the same narrow way. We're all sojourners, on our way home to the celestial city the new jerusalem and we long for the day when it comes down out of the heavens and we are with god forever and ever in the new heavens in the new earth and that hope is like fertilizer which fertilizes our faith and our love it urges us on in the meantime you are what you are by the grace of god and our attitude should be that should so infect our mind That we can't help being servants one to another. What if there's conflict? We know what our attitude should be one to another. What if there's conflict? What if conflict breaks out between believers? What, What should we do? How is reconciliation to be achieved? Well, what if you're the offended one? You need to begin... By reminding yourself of what you are, you need to remember what you are. You're a fellow redeemed sinner. And if someone has offended you, you show mercy, you show grace. Love covers over a multitude of offenses. Paul wanted Philemon to forgive that debt that Onesimus had accrued. And Onesimus, he must have been aware, keenly aware as a believer now, of all the wrong that he had done. And Paul is now sending him back to face the music, and Paul is hopeful, even expectant, that Philemon will receive him back. You see, this is what separates us from worldly gatherings. This is how we survive This is how we thrive. And this is what the world needs. It needs to be reconciled to God. And once it is reconciled to God, it needs to become part of the family of God through a local community. And in these communities, we are celebrating God's goodness. I want to say one final thing the world around us, particularly the West, our country, screams over and over about equality, doesn't it? It's a buzzword now. Equity. All these words. Hmm. I could say so much. And those of you who know me know I could say quite a bit about this. But I'm going to reserve myself this morning. And I'm going to say, let's step back and not have our worldview shaped by the Republican Party or the Democrats, but by the scriptures on this matter. Do you want to see equality amongst people? Sure. How is that going to be achieved? Well, it's not going to be achieved ever until humanity gets right with God first. There is but one true and living God. And you want to know why the world's in such a mess? Come on now, folks. You know why. Because humanity is in rebellion to the one true God. And because that vertical relationship is broken... The horizontal relationships will never be healed. Remember what I said a moment ago about our communities. We've been reconciled now. There should be harmony. And if there isn't, there are mechanisms in place to achieve harmony. And people appointed in the church to judge when someone's out of line. But we have the greatest foundation of all to have harmony. We should, we, should, we should be demonstrating to the world what equality really looks like. Remember what I said, this group of people, look at us. We would not hang out together with one another, but we're together. Why are we together? Because we're reconciled to God and we're reconciled one to another. This is what the world needs. So don't let the world tell you that equality can be achieved by taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Don't tell the world that equality can be be achieved by by one class holding it over another class of people or God forbid and le- never let this be named among you making judgments based upon people's skin tone. Equality will never be achieved while we are in rebellion to God. Equality is achieved when you fix the vertical, the horizontal follows. We possess this truth. Again. Where are we in the world? What are we afraid of? When people say that, when people lament about inequality and injustice and all these other things, say there will never be long-term, permanent solutions to these problems until one gets right with God through faith in Christ. You see, we live in a pluralistic society. You young people... Do not let the world lie to you. They will tell you there are many ways to God. There is but one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All religions are not equal. Sorry. All gods are not equal. There's but one true God. All others are false. Do you see what I mean? We have the words of life, which can bring peace. We possess the truth. What if a brother or sister offends you? Let me finish here. You must forgive. (laughs) There are two things that I find really difficult to do. Waiting on the Lord and forgiving. You say, well, I tried forgiving this person who offended me. And some of you have experienced such deep traumatic wounds at the hand of another. But I can tell you, you can find a place in your life through the grace of God where you can be at peace with that and really forgive. I promise you God can do it. But you have to ask, you have to die daily to it. Like Paul and Philemon were willing to absorb... Onesimus debt, we need to absorb others' offenses against us. We need to relinquish that desire to punish. We need to forgive from our hearts. Remember what Jesus said. He said these words, they're so. How do these get by us? He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, Notice it's an if statement. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Did you hear that word? Do you believe the Bible is God's word? Do you know what that's saying? That's saying if you're an unforgiving person, at best, your relationship between the Father is cut off temporarily until you get that right. At worst, it may mean you don't know Him at all. You see how serious... This is Jesus speaking, not Steve. Forgiveness is not optional. And if you're an unforgiving person, in the least, your fellowship is stunted at worst. You may not know the Lord, and it consumes you. Paul knew that. Philemon knew that. Onesimus would once again... Experience the love of Christ through Philemon's forgiveness of his sins. Overlook the sins and shortcomings of your fellow believer. For you have many of your own. And God, who has none, sent his Son, who has none, to die for them and for you. Let's pray.